Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, our first program of 2023, I've seen the list of questions today that we have for our broadcast partners, and I'm so excited about the program. What, in your opinion, is the underlying theme of today's program? Well, Jimmy, you look at events taking place all over the world, and it, it, just from the Middle East, and you have Europe, Russia, Asia, all over the place. All these things are coming together, and it looks like there's a plan in place. There sure is. God is good in that he is implementing a plan to rid the universe of evil once and for all, Rick. He is the God of justice, and he will one day make all things right. That's Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen, Revelation 21, 5. Sin and evil will be dealt with in perfect judgment. Because of Christ, we have the promise of Romans sixteen twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I'm so looking forward to that. And man, as we keep going this year, as we're looking forward to what's going to take place, we have Israel Madad on the program today talking about archaeology, Shiloh. He's talking about the Temple Mount. He'll be talking about the Supreme Court judicial system in Israel. David Dolan will be here. Dr. Richard Schmidt will be on the program. He's going to be taking a look at the book with me today. We've got so much ahead of this on the program today, so let's get started with our first broadcast partner, Rick Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an analyst and an author, and you can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, Rick, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we'll start off in Russia and a ceasefire. And now, is this a real ceasefire or what's going on here? Well, this is Vladimir Putin's ceasefire for the Orthodox Christmas, which is January 7th. Uh, they celebrate Christmas, obviously, on a, on a different date, the date of the Epiphany uh, for us. And look, nobody is taking it very seriously. Uh, many commentators who are looking at this, like uh, General Jack Keane at the Institute for the Study of War, believes this is a ploy uh, to allow the Russians essentially to regroup their forces uh, Zelensky has said, uh, gee, funny thing about this ceasefire, the Russians are trying to halt our advances as we are actually <laughs> making progress uh, in eastern Ukraine and recapturing our territory. So we'll see. Uh, it's, it's not at all clear whether they, the Russians will actually cease fire, stop bombing targets. There were air raid sirens over Kiev on uh, Friday. So, uh, you know, it's not exactly clear that the Russians will keep their own pledge. But at any rate, it is not a serious thing militarily, and it's something that Putin, I think, has advanced uh, to make himself look good on the international stage. So far, that isn't working so well. Well, Ken, we've talked about this war quite a bit over the last year, and uh, I think one of the terms we've used is a slog. And, and uh, even though there is news stories each week, really not much is changing now, is it? Well, uh, what, what, it's changing slowly, and it's changing slowly on the ground as the Ukrainians acquire more weapons from the West, uh, as they increase their air defenses, as they get more and longer-range missiles so they can hit the Russians. The Ukrainians are succeeding in taking back territory. Some of those uh, eastern provinces uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, that has been successful, has got the Russians worried. This is, okay, it is a slog. Uh, but sometimes that's how you do it. You slowly, gradually push back the Russian forces and the Ukrainians recapture their own territory. 
One of the stories coming out of uh, this war is Iran's cooperation with Russia against Ukraine. We've talked about that quite a bit and the fact that they're using drones from Iran to attack Ukraine. But you brought up a story last week. Those drones have U.S. parts in them. Uh, that's right. And uh, last week we talked about the engines for one set of drones, which is made by a company in Europe that is owned by at 50 percent by Bain Capital. Remember, this is the Boston based venture capital firm that Mitt Romney founded. And I haven't heard Senator Romney be uh, terribly critical of his former company for what they're doing with the Iranians. Perhaps he just doesn't know. Uh, but this week there was a new report from the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies written by a former Defense Department official who examined uh, information provided by the Ukrainians of a downed Iranian drone. In other words, one of these drones that Iran has sold to Russia and that the Russians have used against Ukraine. And he found that there were parts from dozens of U.S. companies, 52 components they looked at, and 40 of them appeared to have been manufactured by 13 different U.S. companies. Now, let's be clear. Most of this technology, their printed circuit boards, their various uh, you know, processors, their metal parts, there's stuff that, that, generally speaking, is not controlled as sophisticated technology. We have two different export control systems in the United States, both of which I wrote about extensively in the 1990s, both of which were dismantled pretty much by the Clinton administration. But you've got the Pentagon, which controls militarily critical technologies. This is the kind of stuff that goes into the F-35, into rockets, into uh, satellites, you know, optical technology, propulsion technology, very advanced computers. Uh, and then you've got what's called commercial off-the-shelf technology, which is controlled by the Department of Commerce. The Commerce Department has always failed to control this kind of stuff. That's what's going to Iran through intermediary companies, for the most part in Europe. And the Iranians are very good at vacuuming it up wherever they can get it and then making their drones and selling them to Russia. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that now with these recent reports, we've got to crack down on here in the United States. The Commerce Department has got to you know, up its game and talk to these manufacturers. In many cases, there won't be a legal remedy. They won't have a legal tool to use against them because they're not violating any law. So what they've got to do essentially is use moral suasion and say, hey, Mr. X, do you really want to be identified as a supplier to this Iranian drone program that's killing people in Ukraine? And more cases than not, they'll probably say, no, we really don't want to do that. And they could back off. Well, that's just one of the many facets of this crisis, this war that we we need to pay attention to for sure. Another uh, area that we kind of want to keep an eye on. Russia, although they have not been very successful on the ground in Ukraine, they still have a pretty strong, sophisticated hacker program, don't they? Oh, yes. They're probably the best in the world. <laughs> and there are multiple groups of Russian hackers. Some are controlled by the former KGB, the SVB, and, and others, uh, more of them are controlled by the GRU, which is military intelligence. And uh, this week we learned that there's a new hacker group called Cold River. It's been active since about 2015, 2016, but hasn't made front pages of the newspapers until just this past week when they it was revealed that they had targeted U.S. nuclear weapons labs over the summer. 
They'd gone after the Brookhaven lab, the Argonne lab, and the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Now, I've been out to Livermore, uh, and it's a pretty amazing place. Not only do they design nuclear weapons, but they have a very, very advanced nuclear fusion uh, laboratory. It, it's as big as several football fields and seven or eight stories tall. I've been inside of it. Uh, it's co-financed, by the way, by the French of all people. And it's not surprising that Russia would try to hack them. I'm not so sure they've been very successful, uh, but nevertheless, that the, our national nuclear labs would be a target of this Cold River Russian hacking group is not a surprise. Another area to keep an eye on. Well, let's move to the Middle East and uh, our old friend Erdogan in Turkey is looking to uh, possibly use Russia as a broker for peace with Syria. You know, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether it's Erdogan using Russia or whether it's the Russians putting the squeeze mm. on Erdogan. Last week, their intelligence ministers, intelligence directors met in Moscow, Syria and Turkey's intelligence directors. And now Erdogan is saying that he could hold a summit with Assad again with the intervention of Moscow. My guess is here that Putin is looking to expand uh, the areas where he can have a diplomatic success, where he can have client states that do his bidding. Turkey has not mm. been a client state yet. Syria certainly is. But I think what we're seeing is Putin trying to turn Turkey into a client state at the same time Turkey continues to belong to NATO. Well, we've documented this very much over the last few years. There is a changing geopolitical scene in this world, and there's new allies being formed. Another instance, and this is the final question I have for you, a Chinese company has signed an oil extraction deal with the Afghanistan Taliban. So there's all kinds of things taking place over there, aren't there? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of look at this and say, what took them so long? <laughs> <You know, laughs> Afghanistan is an extraordinarily rich country. It was estimated during uh, the U.S. intervention there that there was something like $3 trillion worth of raw materials, mineral assets for the most part, cobalt, manganese, copper, rare earth minerals underground that were ready to be exploited. And for one reason or another, the U.S. government was not helping or encouraging U.S. companies to invest. So the Chinese now have come forward and uh, they're putting up several hundred million dollars to explore for oil in Afghanistan. That's the one mineral resource that nobody really knew that they had. So China's going to Afghanistan to get oil. I guarantee you, Rick, it is just the beginning. They're not going to stop with oil. They're going to go for these other mineral assets as well. And you're going to see China moving in in a big, big way. Remember, Afghanistan is not very far away from China uh, over a, a, a very high range of mountains, but they're basically neighbors. So it will be easier for the Chinese to get in there and control the country than it would be for either us or the Russians. Well, can we keep an eye on these countries? And you look at Russia, you look at Syria, Turkey, China. These countries have political implications, but uh, for our program as well, they have prophetic implications. So, well, we appreciate you helping us to keep an eye on these countries. We appreciate your expertise and the information you give us each week, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, thanks so much, Rick. And just one more thing is that it also shows that U.S. policies do make a difference. If we hadn't withdrawn from Afghanistan uh, precipitously this past August, I don't think you'd see the Chinese there today. So U.S. policies can make a difference. You're exactly right, Ken. And I'll tell you exactly why God is using world leaders to accomplish his will. Thanks a lot, Ken. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ukraine expects prolonged attacks from Russia as payback for a deadly assault. At least 89 Russian soldiers died during a Ukrainian missile strike on New Year's Eve. Now, President Volodymyr Zelensky is telling his people, including the Transworld Radio Ukraine team, to hold on. Despite the upheaval, TWR Ukraine is reaching people for Christ. Ask God to keep blessing the team with creativity and stamina as they produce radio and social media programs. And traveling from village to village, Christian missionaries across Africa are sharing the love of Jesus with an essential tool scripture booklets from World Missionary Press. The traveling missionaries are with the ministry partner of World Missionary Press. As they leave one village, the literature continues ministering the gospel. For just pennies a day, these scripture booklets are changing hearts and lives from Muslims in Nigeria to witch doctors in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, on Ms. Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and we have journalist Dave Dolan with us. Dave, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you as usual, Rick. Dave, first thing, there's so many things going on, and so it's going to be hard to boil everything down to our 10-minute segment here. But uh, the biggest story that came out this week was Ben Gavir, the new minister in the Netanyahu government, visiting the Temple Mount. Can you tell us what you know about that story? Yeah, Rick, it was uh, anticipated that uh, Ben Gavir would at some point go up and visit the Temple Mount since he's done it quite a few times before when, of course, he wasn't in the government and wasn't a minister. He's a national security minister, the police minister, really. A former security minister uh, visited there. Uh, Overall, 10 or 12 Knesset members over the past few years have visited of course, as I mentioned last week, the 2000, September 2000 visit by Ariel Sharon set off the second uprising. And there was some concern and some speculation that a Ben Gavir visit would spark another round of Hamas rocket attacks and that sort of thing with them screaming now for several months that uh, they would view any such visit as a grave provocation and a grave threat and changing the status quo and all those sorts of things. But he visited on Tuesday morning, and Rick, Jews are allowed early in the morning uh, on five days of the week to visit for an hour or so. 
And uh, Tuesday was a special day. It was one of several fast days in the annual Jewish calendar that commemorate the um, destruction of the first and second temples and other disasters that have befallen the Jewish people. The ninth of Av in the summer is, of course, the biggest fast day, but that Tuesday was one. And so he and many other Jews went up there. He was only there for 15 minutes with a small um, security escort, and then he came back down. But as expected, it set off a firestorm in the Muslim world for sure, with a lot of criticism coming from others as well. The Palestinian foreign ministry issued a statement. I'll read it. It said this was an unprecedented provocation and a dangerous escalation of the conflict. Went on to say that Netanyahu bears responsibility for this attack. Attack on Al-Aqsa. Uh, the Prime Minister, the Palestinian Prime Minister, called it an incursion, <laughs> which is a military term, but an incursion, an attempt to turn Al-Aqsa into a Jewish temple. Um, Hamas said it was a detonator for a new regional war. And most interesting was statements that were issued by six regional Muslim countries, Rick, Egypt that has peace with Israel, Jordan the same, the UAE issued a, a condemnation, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and then non-Arab uh, Turkey uh, and Bahrain. So there was a number of countries, but most of them used the same phrasing. They said this storming of the Temple Mount must be resisted. So it's an incursion, it's a storming, it's an attack. Well, it was one man, he's a government minister, but one man visiting on a Jewish fast day in an hour when Jews are allowed to uh, ascend to the Temple Mount and going up there, it was not a military incursion. It was not storming usually implies, again, weapons and conflict and resistance and all sorts of things. So the language is, as usual, over the top. Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke with Ben Gavir the day before. He didn't oppose the visit. He said, "I, you know, we do need to keep everything as calm as possible. He reiterated in statements that the status quo would remain, in fact, at the holy sites in Jerusalem. And uh, by the way, the uh, chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, Yitzhak Yosef, I've talked about him before. He made some pretty strong anti-Ben Gavir statements earlier in the year. He issued a new one. He said the government should act according to the chief rabbinite's long-forbidden policy, forbidding uh, Jewish prayer up on the Temple Mount, he noted, and it's true, that the um, chief rabbinate is considered, while not a government entity, actually, it does have official status in Israel, and its rulings are considered the final say from the religious uh, point of view, as it were. So he condemned it as well. And the U.S. ambassador Thursday morning went on Army Radio and uh, also said this was provocative and that we oppose any sort of provocative actions in Jerusalem, and we made that clear to the Israeli government. He was also asked about the other controversy raging, which is uh, the new minister, Schmoltrick, and Ben Gavir's party has a member that wants to ban the annual June gay rights parade, as it were, a homosexual march in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv. He said, I not only oppose that, but I will March at the front of the line next June. So that was interesting coming from an American. 
But uh, it set off a firestorm, but uh, so far no rockets, and hopefully we won't uh, find anything like that. Well, David, it certainly seems like some actors are going to use this event of him going up onto the Temple Mount for their own ends, and they are going to use it as a provocation for further action for their specific agenda. Well, Rick, like I've said a number of times, there's one issue and one issue alone that pretty much unites all of the Muslim world. Uh, in which case some of the Muslim countries are fighting each other, actually, militarily, that sort of thing. But one issue they can all agree on, and that is that there should be no Jewish temple uh, on the Temple Mount, Israel's holiest site on earth, because Islam now controls it and the status quo has to be maintained and no changes on that. So they say that all the time. It's true that Ben Gavir advocates uh, the building of a third Jewish temple, It's true that uh, he's considered in the past a bit of an agitator. He's made some pretty strong anti-Arab statements at times. But it's also true that he's moderated those positions. He's one member of the 64-member government. His party of 14 members all support rebuilding the temple. But as I said last week, the two other religious parties strongly oppose it. The chief rabbi, the Sephardic chief rabbi, strongly condemning the ideas. So it's not as if it's about to happen. And this just gives everybody a reason to cause trouble. One avenue that is usually taken by the Palestinians and many in the world jump aboard is taking issues like this to the U.N. I know they are having a meeting, an emergency meeting of the U.N. to talk about this, what I consider is essentially a non-event, or it's an event, I know it is an event, but in essence, there's no change of the status quo, no matter what people may say. But David, there's also been reports out this week just showing how one side the UN has been against Israel over the years, and especially this year. Yeah, Rick, the year ended last Friday at the UN with the uh, 15th anti-Israel resolution of the year was passed by the General Assembly. In all of last year, 2022, there were 13 other resolutions against countries, 13 for the rest of the world. Half of those had to do with Putin's invasion of um, Ukraine, six of them, but 15 against Israel. So, and since 2015, Israel's uh, had 140 resolutions passed against it. Everybody else in the world, Iran, North Korea, on and on and on, all together had 68. So nearly double for Israel. So it is extremely lopsided, one-sided. Israel sneezes and they have to have a UN session. Uh, Yes, you know, Ben Gavir visiting on Tuesday on a Jewish fast day when a lot of Orthodox Jews go to pray uh, at holy sites, including the Temple Mount, is not a huge change of status or anything that should get everybody else worked up. Meanwhile, how many hundreds of people were killed in the war in Europe and Ukraine and how many refugees uh, were added to the list and on and on and the situation all over the world. And even the situation in China, David, with the Muslims, with the Uyghur Muslims. Well, exactly. There's, There's some other issues that are far more. Israel's not enslaving its Muslim residents. Israel's not forcing them into slave labor like the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs. Um, Israel isn't wholesale slaughtering civilians like uh, Putin. Russia, one of the members of the Security Council, 
is doing. It's not threatening to invade another country like China is with Taiwan, claiming it's part of their country and they can just take over. So, uh, again, it, it's, they're just crying and screaming and yelling. Uh, and at the bottom of it, of it is anti-Semitism. As we've said many times, mm-hmm. at the bottom of that is anti-Jewishness and anti-biblicalness and anti-Godness. And uh, that's what's really going on. David, I looked at it. We talked about China just a second ago. I mean, they have zero, zero to 15 for Israel. So I do tend to agree with you. The only conclusion that you can take out of this is that it is an anti-Semitism and it is anti the one true God. Well, David, thank you so much for your update this week. Always so much going on in Israel. And sometimes uh, for your 10-minute segment, we should really just take about two hours, but we can't always do that. But you do a good job of being concise and to the point. So we appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Let's pray for a calm uh, new year and uh, God bless. Rick and Dave, I'm uh, reminded of Joel chapter 2, the invasion of the locusts, uh, when it's first mentioned the day of the Lord in Scripture. Hey, Rick, uh, ask Dave if he'll stick around just for a second. I want to look at 2023 with him. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, when we talk about Israel, I get so excited about Israel. It is a great place to go, and I think this is a great opportunity and a great spot before we go back to Dave, who is standing by, by the way, uh, to talk about Israel. It certainly is, Jimmy, and you know that's our heartbeat here. It's part of our ministry is that we take people to Israel. We take people into what we believe is the greatest classroom in the world to study the Bible. And and I'm sure you would agree with me on that account. It's a place where we can go with Bible in hand and look at Israel past, present, and prophetic. Yes. And we've already done that twice in 2022. And thank the Lord we were able to finally go back to be a part of being in the land People are going back there. Groups are going. They feel safe. They feel uh, very comfortable. It was almost like the gates open at every, you know, it's kind of like Black Friday. You know how when they open the doors and people are rushing into the land (laughs) and it's starting to slow down a little bit now, but you know, going there, it really is a great, and, and Rick, you know, somebody asked me the other day, I've got an unsaved friend. Uh, that I want to take to Israel, would you, is that something that we're against? And I'm like, no, 
taking them to the land of Israel, teaching them about God's plan for the Jewish people, just as you said, Bible in hand, looking at past, present, and prophetic. It really is, it's a great witnessing tool for people as we show from God's word, the Jewish people from the past, God's plan for the Jews today, and for us as Gentiles, as believers, um, and then what the plan is in the future for the Jewish people. So I think it's a great time if people wanted to go to Israel. Do they have a chance to go with us at any time soon? Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that, Jimmy, <laughs> because they certainly do. And I know you are taking a trip yourself March 8th of this year. Now, that I know that is uh, quick timing, but these trips are coming together quickly now as we plan and going forward. And we have some spots that have opened up. It's going to be a pretty small group, but that's the way we like it. It's in mm-hmm. It's personal and it's intense, and you get a chance to interact with us. If you are interested in going on that trip to Israel, like I said, we have a few spots. Call our office, 423-825-6247. We can give you all the details. It's the trip of a lifetime. You really, if you've never been before, it's something you won't regret. It's something you want to do. It sure will be. Well, let's get back. David Dolan is standing by, Rick. Well, David, this is our first program of 2023, and I can't believe 2022 is already over. It seemed to go by so fast. Last week, we talked about what took place in 2022 and why it was so important. Now, I would like to look ahead just a little bit, and I know, David, that you're not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but you are a journalist. You've lived in Israel for many years, and you're a student of Bible prophecy as well. So taking all of those experiences that you have and putting them together, what do you think that we should look at in 2023, things that are going to take place in Israel or maybe throughout the whole Middle East that are going to shape the year ahead? Well, Rick, uh, the fact that we have a new government in Israel, that it's an old prime minister, an experienced prime minister, but a brand new government, and definitely the farthest to the right that Israel has ever had, is going to impact the region significantly, probably. Uh, It, as we were just talking about before, it goes on Israel's enemies, um, gets them all riled up. So I think we can expect more violence from the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria, more terror attacks, sadly. I think we can expect uh, more rockets uh, through the year from the Gaza Strip. And uh, this may be the year uh, that Hezbollah finally uses its huge arsenal, growing arsenal, uh, backed by Iran against Israel. We don't know, but um, certainly that stands as a prospect at virtually any time. It doesn't look to me like there'll be any more additions to the Abraham Accords, again, with the new government, including Ben Gavir, etc. The Arab leaders that would like to carry on with the process are probably going to be too worried about internal uh, reactions against it if they go forward. So I wouldn't expect much on that scene. And it'll be interesting to watch how the Biden administration and Netanyahu get along. Now, Netanyahu was still prime minister when uh, Joe Biden came into office a little over two years ago, but now he's back with a more right-wing government. So, And of course, Biden's lost his uh, control over Congress, or so it seems. If the Republicans can get their act together, that is. So um, there, there's going to be friction there, I would suspect, and with Europe and more anti-Israel resolutions, 
hopefully not a major Mideast war, but it is still developing. It is still coming at a certain point. And um, Russia will play a key factor in all of that, what they do in Ukraine and all of that. So uh, shaky world, shaky Middle East, but uh, the Lord remains on the throne overall. David, thanks so much for that look ahead to 2023. Thank you, and uh, God bless. Rick, great interview with David Dolan. You know, and I, I I don't mind going that extra bit because David has so much knowledge to share with us about Israel and about what's taking place there. And I just think it's something that we focus on and we want people to understand what is taking place in Israel. We certainly do, Jimmy. And and sometimes it seems to me, and you and I do this program every week, and it seems like we rehearse a lot of the same stories and the same topics every week. But Jimmy, I just got a call from a, a listener this week, a great guy, and we were talking about Uh, what was taking place in Israel. And you know what? He said he just started listening. So, Jimmy, it's never bad to rehearse these principles. But for the new people that are listening, we like to make sure that we continue to explain it so people understand what is going on and why we do this. We look at these current events. They're setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And that gives us hope for the future. It sure does. And we focus on Israel because God's not finished with the Jewish people yet. He made promises to them and those four covenants, beginning with the Abrahamic blessing and the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, and the new covenant. So we know that God's not finished with the Jewish people yet. That's why each week we kind of focus on Israel. There is today, there are people getting saved there. There are Jewish people getting saved. They joined the body of Christ. You and I, Rick, Gentiles and Jews become one in the church and the body of Christ. But that generation, the the people of Jews that don't accept Christ, the tribulation period is really for them, according to Daniel chapter 9, where uh, that reason for the tribulation period is so that they will see that Jesus is their Messiah and that God can set up and anoint the most holy place. When you look at Daniel chapter 9, that's why it lays it out. So each week when we focus with on our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, we follow along with what's taking place in Israel. I also like today, Rick, we're going to go and we're going to talk to Israel Madad. We call him affectionately Winky Madad. We're going to go and he lives in Shiloh where the tabernacle stood for almost 369 years. We're going to go there and talk to Winky about what's taking place in Shiloh, an interesting um, announcement or event that could take place concerning the Temple Mount and the judicial system in Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Winky Madad with us today. Now, Winky is the former mayor of Shiloh. He resides in the area of Judea and Samaria. That's what we call it, but uh, some might call it the West Bank area. And he joins us this evening while fixing his soup. Is that right, Winky? That's absolutely correct. Well, Winky, it's so good to talk to you. Now, I know as I'm talking to you today, earlier you were at an archaeological convention for Shiloh. Now, this was this is not what I necessarily planned on talking to you about. I have a few news items, but I was wondering, it's fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, the Ariel University that's located just north of where I live and is one of the newest universities in Israel, of course, has devoted a lot of its academic interest and effort uh, in the field of archaeology. 
I always call it confirming the biblical narrative, mm -hmm. because uh, if you dig and you measure and you carbon-14, and now they have demagnetization processes and all sorts of things that science has allowed us to advance, you can find out exactly where, what time period the pottery was from to uh, figure out inscriptions, fires that took place, and all sorts of things. And as I think we've mentioned in the past, we're reaching now over 90% of confirmation in basic broad strokes of whatever was written in the Bible in terms of the happenings of 3,000 to, to 2,000 years ago uh, that people who happen not to believe in God, for example, don't believe in or think they're stories rather than actual historical events. So we know when people invaded Israel, uh, Shishik and, uh, and uh, Assyria and Egypt and all sorts of things like that, and uh, it's just wonderful. And so it's also one of my hobbies, being here at Shiloh, of course. And uh, it was a great presentation by about 10 people from the archaeological department on their studies, including water and caves in the Dead Sea area that are like are 1,000 meters long, all sorts of wonderful things that just delight me. Well, Winky, if you're a fan of archaeology or if you're an aspiring Indiana Jones type, uh, Israel is the dream for you. You stick a shovel in the ground just about anywhere over there, and you will unearth antiquities. And Israel is one of the leaders in the world and the universities in Israel in unearthing those type of things. But it's very interesting what you say. It's confirming the Bible. Now, I didn't necessarily need that, and I'm sure you didn't necessarily need it to confirm the Bible. But it does. And that's important, too, because there are many people that are denying certain things, like uh, even politically, if you look at it, people deny that there was ever a Jewish temple. There was a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, certain things like that, that if you just look at it from an archaeological perspective, you, you would tell in 10 seconds that that's not true. Absolutely. First of all, not everybody is a believer, shall we say. Not everybody has a confirmed faith, no matter what religion you are. And for these people, science for them is much more important. For us, perhaps, it's comforting to know, uh, but when you're arguing, as you said, in the political field or in the identity field, temple denial, Jews are not a nation, we never had kings, our cities that were destroyed or cities that we destroyed at one time never existed. It, it was written down by uh, in, in the first Persian period, you know, of about uh, eight, seven, six hundred years before the Common Era, all these theories are really falling away one by one as we continue to dig. Well, Winky, that wasn't my initial reason for calling, but that's some excellent insight. And let's go back to the Temple Mountain. That's where all the news is this week. And uh, just recently on this program, we had Dave Dolan, and he talked about uh, the visit by Ben Gavir to the Temple Mountain, the uproar whether justified or not, that that caused in uh, the international world. And you wrote an article for the Jerusalem Post. It's an opinion piece, and the title of the article is Netanyahu Must Work with Jordan to Solve the Temple Mount Conflict. Can you talk about this article a little bit? First of all, the headline, of course, was not mine. But uh, <laughs> uh, what I did try to say is that Mr. Netanyahu has the possibility of reordering the arrangements that exist at the Temple Mount at this time 
without necessarily so-called disturbing the historical status quo, which, of course, I know is not historic. If at all, it's from 1924. And earlier and later, it's just discrimination by Muslims who don't permit Jews to go up there. And you would think that the uh, progressive liberal world would honor human rights and respect people's right to worship and, and to visit their holy sites, but of course that doesn't count for the Jews. No one argues with the Muslims why a Jews shouldn't or should have rights of prayer as Christians also. I mean, uh, I think this is the 200th time we said this for the program, but I think the listeners need to hear it again because not everybody has been up there. It's a very large compound encircled by walls, and there's loads of room for many people in all sorts of corners that no one would pay attention to them, whatever they were doing. As for a temple, I'm willing to wait for a period and when everybody's a little bit more calm uh, before dealing with that issue. Let's first get this over with. And so I, I made some suggestions to him. For example, he should tell Jordan, stop using the word provocations and settlers who are storming the Temple Mount. They are Jews visiting their holy site. Mm -hmm. uh, why should Jews only go in through one gate? Why should they only have, uh, at the most, about five and a half or so hours each day, excluding Friday and Saturday? Now, okay, we can argue about Friday, which is the Muslim holy day, okay? But Saturday, our Shabbat, what's very special with them, we could go up there also. Another thing I think I didn't, I didn't put in the article uh, they actually very firm security operations up there. If I can remind you, a couple of years ago, there's a big riots broke out because if you're there to put, what do we call them in English, metal detectors mm -hmm. yeah, for people to walk through, after two policemen were killed and, and Israel backed down, unfortunately, because the United States was pressuring us. So I, I tried to make up a list of things that would help Jordan keep its status as the custodian in the meantime, or if not, Mr. Netanyahu could say, well, we have Saudi Arabia, which is next on my list of peace partners. Uh, they have Mecca and Medina. I'm sure they'd love to replace Jordan as the supervisory power over Jerusalem, and maybe I can make a better deal with Saudi Arabia than I'm doing with Mr. Uh, King Abdullah II over on the other side of the Jordan River. That was basically the thrust of the article. Well, it certainly is a very interesting article. And if uh, you would like, we're going to post a link to it on our website, and you could read Winky's article. It's an, it's an opinion article, but it's, it brings up many good points. I can't necessarily go over all of them. But at the end, you say you are looking to have a more balanced fair and honest conversation regarding the Temple Mount, and this is important, it's, which is not only an Islamic, but very much a Jewish holy site. And you're not necessarily arguing for the status quo to change, or like you said, a, a temple. We, we'll talk about that maybe later or maybe in the future. But we're just, we're looking at this realistically without all of the political uh, juxtapositions, the provocations that come along with it. Do you think, Winky, and I'll ask you this question, do you think that talking to Jordan and talking to the king there is more of a an opportunity to make a deal than you could with maybe the Palestinians? I remind you and the listeners that in 2013, Mahmoud Abbas himself 
handed over and signed a piece of paper to that that the he recognizes or the, the Palestinian National Authority recognizes uh, the king uh, of Jordan as the custodian. So, I mean, they themselves sort of handed over in a certain sense. And one good reason is he's Jordan is paying the salaries of close to 900 WACF officials, hmm. 80 of whom are women, and seeks to create endowments. Now, endowments actually mean the Arabic meaning of that, translated to English, is like uh, study sessions, uh, small schools that would uh, be based there. So in other words, he's trying to increase his presence up there. Uh, the Palestinian Authority doesn't have the money, and between you and me, they don't want Hamas or any extremists like the Islamic Jihad uh, or Al-Tahriya uh, to get involved. They'd rather work with the, the king uh, of Jordan. And uh, I think Mr. Netanyahu should make it uh, very plain to the king uh, that uh, if he wants to remain on board, he has to be a little bit more forthcoming and uh, stop this ex exclusionary attitude that on the Temple Mount, Jews are tourists and not uh, people who have uh, 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 a holy site up there and want to respect or even pray up there. Well, Winky, we talked about this issue many times in the past, and I encourage our listeners to go read your article. It certainly is a very interesting article and brings up many valid points, in my opinion. Well, finally, the last question I'd like to have, since we have you on the program and we appreciate your insight so much, Winky, there is a controversy raging in Israel right now, protests over some changes to the way Israel's judicial system works. Now, I, I, this is really complicated, but what you do for us so well, Winky, is you make the complicated simple. So if you could, take a look at this situation for us. Tell us what we're looking at here. Why is there the controversy and what's going on? All right. Let me do it with bullet points, as we say. A, Israel does not have a constitution. So while we have, like America and most other democracies, three institutions of government, the Knesset would be the legislative, the government would be, of course, the executive power, and the judicial power, we have a Supreme Court with an additional what's called a high court of justice, which really doesn't exist in too many places in the world, except England, where we got most of our law and, and, and government institutions from because of the mandate period. Now, doing that, we have a series of basic laws that are sort of like a constitution. What happened was, back in 1992, a law that's, you could, you could say it's a law of human and civil rights within the country. Protection of workers, protection of women, all sorts of, you know, things that are very basic to an American from the Bill of Rights, okay? But that really wasn't part of Israel. We make these basic laws, and that passed with 32 votes in favor. In other words, it wasn't even a majority of 61. Supreme Court Justice Aaron Barak took advantage of that and said, well, that gives the Supreme Court the right when civil rights are harmed, uh, supposedly, in our opinion, to declare a law of the Knesset illegal. Now, that's grabbing power, okay? Mm -hmm. The second thing he did 
was we don't have to judge according to the law. We can also judge what is reasonable. Now, reasonable, as you and I know, there's a big difference even what's reasonable between you and me. Mm-hmm. Forget about a progressive liberal judge or a religious judge or an atheist judge or, I don't know, uh, I, I, you know, whatever judge you want to call it. It's where you grew up, where you went to school, where's your wife from, uh, what do you, what'd you do before you were judged. All that enters into your mind as a very subjective reasonable. And when they ask them, so who judges what is reasonable? In other words, if I pass a law saying that the speed limit is 60, and you think, I think it's more reasonable it should be 55. You know, what are you basing on that? Do you have academic studies? Uh, and I'm just making up something just off the top of the head, but begin to think about that in terms of uh, all sorts of issues, uh, whether or not Israel should should withdraw from Sinai or withdraw from the Gaza Strip or all sorts of things. And in addition to that, the judges elect themselves for all intents and purposes because at this moment they have a majority on the selection committee for the judges. For all those Americans listening in on our conversation, unlike the Senate, right, which has a question and answer period for Supreme Court justices. You guys just went through that in the last two or three years, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, with so-called conservative religious judges, okay? And it was very rigorous, and everybody asked questions, and he asked personal questions, and he asked what they did when he was a kid playing football, all sorts of things, right? We don't have that in Israel. We have names put into this committee, And as I said, the judges have an effective majority on this. So they elect themselves, you know, a friend bringing a friend. And so uh, there are a few other issues involved. All this has been criticized very much over the last 15 or so years because the court has been eating away and taking more and more power. And people say, wait a second, we're a democracy. The people vote in the members of Knesset. If there's no law that says how a Supreme Court can declare a law illegal, you can't declare it illegal. So as basic as possible, this is what we're in right at the present moment with the new minister, Justice Minister Yariv Levine, bringing a whole list of reform measures. Well, Winky, I look at this and I see this is the new buzzword, and we've heard it here in the States as well, this is the end of democracy, and we have to fight against the end of democracy. But to me, it seems a little bit like judicial overreach, and potentially, and let me see if I have this right, this government seems to be very conservative. Some may say a right-wing government, very conservative, and they are worried that, okay, the balance of power might shift to the conservative side, and that's why they're uh, they need the judicial powers to restrict that. I mean, this all seems very political, doesn't it? It is. And the Likud and other parties that are now part of the 64-member coalition made it very clear during the election that this is basically what they were going to do. It was one of the hot topics. Not only that, but the previous minister of justice from the previous government 
had himself brought a few of these measures to the fore. He didn't table them, but he 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 made a, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? His party political platform included some of these measures. Not only that, but this week, uh, the, one of the heads of the opposition, Benny Gantz, right, said he's willing to cooperate with Likud and work together to make sure that the Likud doesn't do everything it wants to do but reach a, a, a compromise or a moderate position. So in other words, he is also leaning in that direction. So all this talk about the end of democracy is basically the end of progressive activism, mm. as, as you said, judicial overreach in the United States. It's really bad. <laughs> but here in Israel, we, as I said, we don't have a constitution. And so there has to be a more delicate balance between the three elements of government, the executive branch, the legislative mm-hmm. branch, and the judicial branch. That's what it's all about. Well, Winky, this is a very complicated subject, but uh, I think it's important for our listeners to at least begin to understand it, know where this is coming from and how to think about it as we see these news stories coming. Well, thank you so much for taking your time there in Judea and Samaria in Israel to talk to us about these important topics and educate our listeners. And uh, we hope you stay safe and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. And uh, to you and all our listeners, Goodbye. Thank you, Winky Madad. You know, Rick, as you said, in that buzzword that you said, the end of democracy in Israel, it's prophesied in Ezekiel 37 that there will be two states. We've talked about that a lot on this program, a religious and a secular state, two sticks. Uh, Ezekiel was told to then put them in his hand, and that comes back together at the end of the tribulation period. It's interesting how we see governments around the world really beginning to change. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you've got a great testimony on our website this last week. Somebody sent us an email. Would you read that for us? I sure would, and his name is Cheedan, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he's from India, and he tells us, first of all, he congratulates us on our website. He says, hey, this new-looking website is simply amazing. But then he goes on to talk about our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and he says, I really miss Jimmy DeYoung. I live in India, though such a long distance. I somehow was feeling very close to him. He's my mentor in Bible study Yay, though, we will meet him soon at the rapture. And he says, Lord, bless you guys in his service. What a great testimony from India. Yes, that is a great one. And, you know, uh, with the advent of the Internet today, we're not just on radio stations, and we thank all those radio stations that play us on a weekly basis, but we're also so thankful that we have the Internet to be able to reach out and to help people, especially whether in the Far East, in the Near East, and wherever around the world, to help people to understand and be educated and edified by what we see in God's Word. Well, Rick, speaking of the legacy that Dad has left, this is the Legacy Series, and we're going to go through that today. Today, we're going to begin the brand new series that will answer the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? We'll begin our study in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10. So turn there with me, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. 
But when I open up the floor for Bible prophecy questions, I'm always asked, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Where is the United States? The other day I was in a meeting down south and I opened up for prophecy Q&A and somebody asked that question. And before I could give the answer, a guy in the back said, hey, I know. I normally do not give, you know, any leeway for anybody in the audience to respond to the question. But this guy was rather overbearing. So I said, okay, sir, where do you think the United States is in Bible prophecy? He said, I don't think, Sonny, I know. I said, okay, where is it? Jerusalem. I said, sir, the question is, where is the United States? Hey, I know the question, Sonny. Uh, the answer is Jerusalem. I said, how do you get that, sir? He said, it's very simple. J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. <laughs> and I left just like you did. But that is the answer. That is the answer. If the United States is in Bible prophecy, it has a relationship with Jerusalem. I'll get to that in a few moments. Let's take our Bibles, though, and go to the book of Genesis, because I want to look this morning with you at the origins of states, the origins of nations. You know, the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis is key to our understanding of not only the entire word of God, but Bible prophecy. The book of Genesis is a foundation for Bible prophecy. Everything in the first 12 chapters that is laid out there is the genesis of understanding all of Bible prophecy. Genesis, the first 12 chapters, goes like this. Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis 2, the special effects are details of creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. From Adam to Noah. Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Genesis 9 is Noah after the flood. Genesis 10, another genealogy. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And chapter 12, call of Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. And in those 12 chapters, you have 2,000 years of history. 2,000 years from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. It lays out the foundation of all of Bible prophecy. Now, remember I said Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8 would be Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Look at chapter 9 just a moment with me, and let me show you what God says to Noah and his three sons and their four wives after the flood is over. They've landed on the mountains of Ararat, which would be eastern Turkey, Uh, right over near the Russian border. And here's what the Lord says to Noah, chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Replenish the earth, or repeople the earth. There were approximately, those who make up these statistics, approximately one billion people on the earth from the time of creation until the time of Noah's flood. One billion people were killed with the exception of eight souls, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, his three sons, and their four wives. Those are the only eight souls remaining after this great judgment of a worldwide flood. Now the Lord tells Noah and his sons and their wives, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 10 is the beginning of at least the obedience of these men having relations with their women and moving forward to do exactly what the Lord said, repeople the earth. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Now these are the generations of sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And unto them were sons born after the flood. 
Now here are the sons of Jepheth. I'm not going to read them all, but let me just highlight a couple of them. The sons of Jepheth, Gomer, Magog, skip a couple, Tubal, Meshach, look at the last one in verse 3, Tagarma. Now wait a minute, I just told you that all of Bible prophecy has its foundation in the book of Genesis. In a moment or two, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 38. I have just given you the names of the personalities in Ezekiel 38 and are the nations that will be involved in that alignment of nations coming against the Jewish state of Israel in the beginning of the tribulation period. Their names come from the sons of Noah, uh, excuse me, sons of Jepheth, grandsons of Noah, and they are the ones who established the nations that we'll be talking about. Look what I'm talking about here. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, and in their nations. Now, what happened over in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis is that the people, all of the earth, were speaking one language. Because of that, Nimrod was able to go into the face of God, and instead of doing what the Lord had told him to do in chapter 9 and verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, repeople the earth, he instead said, no, we're not going to fill this earth with people. We're going to build a great city. It will be the beginning of my kingdom. I'm going to set everything in place. And the whole world followed him and got in line behind him. Because of that, then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came down, chapter 11, confused the languages. Now we're looking at a world with so many different languages, nobody's really able to understand each other until they start finding those who are speaking a common language and start coming together to establish a settlement of some type. Once they have done that then... They are going to have children, some of them. They'll teach their children a language, and then they'll move to a location to establish a nation speaking that language. Now, that is the beginning of all nations. Look again at verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue. And so they started learning the language that uh, the Lord had given to them at that place in Babel. After his tongue, after their families, they started raising families in their nations. They established nations. Let's think about this just a moment. You can go to any historical geographical textbook on biblical lands and you can look up Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. When you do that, you're going to see that Magog went to the north of the Caspian and Black Sea with his family, teaching them a language. North of the Caspian and Black Sea, if you know anything about geography, would be what we know as modern-day Russia. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma went south of the Caspian and Black Sea, and that would be in the geographical area that we know today as modern-day Turkey. In fact, I was in Turkey doing some television not too long ago, picked up an ancient Turkish map, and that Turkish map was relating to me that during biblical times, Turkey was divided into four parts. Those four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. And so we see that the sons of Jepheth, grandsons of Noah, took their families, taught them a language, and went to a geographical location and established a nation. Now let's look at verse 6. This is the next son. This would be Ham. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram and Put and Cana. Now let me just think through you, with you who these people are. When you come to Cush, Cush is what we know today as the area of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. Mizram is modern-day Egypt. Put is modern-day Libya. 
and Cana is modern-day Israel. And so we see now that additional nations are coming into existence as well. And this is laying out for us a very interesting concept. Right now, here in chapter 10, we're 262 years away from Abraham ever coming on the scene. Did you hear what I just said? Right now, in this passage of Scripture, it, it, I got the number from the genealogies. Don't throw away genealogies. There's some great truth in genealogies. There's a genealogy in chapter 5 that sets up for the reason Noah was able to escape the flood and his family. A genealogy in chapter 10 laying out for us where these peoples go to establish nations. Chapter 11, a genealogy bringing us to Abraham. And if you look at chapter 10 with Ham having these boys, Cush, Mizoram, and Put, and Cana, you'll have to realize that Abraham's not on the scene. It's 260 years plus before he's ever kind of come on the scene. And by the way, listen to me, that's going to be a number of years before Ishmael ever comes on the scene. Here's my point. Ishmael did not father the Arab world. I just established that Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan... Egypt, the most populated Arab world, Arab nation in the world, and Libya are involved as sons of Ham, grandsons of Noah, establishing nations. How do I know they established nations? Look here in verse 20. Now, these are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, in their nations. One I didn't throw in, Cush has a son named Nimrod. And verse 10 of chapter 10 says the beginning of his king was Babel in the plains of Shinar. That's the area of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. The plains of Shinar would be what we know as modern-day Iraq, another Arab country. Let's just uh, take a moment and go to the book of Genesis chapter 16 with me. The book of Genesis chapter 16. In chapter 16, we see what is going to happen as it relates to the birth of Ishmael. Again, if we're going to understand the nations, we've got to understand who they really are. Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Abraham did not father the Arab world. They did father one nation. Let me tell you who they are. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaiden, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maiden, and it may be that I may obtain children by her. And so Abram hearkened unto the voice of his wife, Sarah. He goes in unto Hagar. He impregnates her. They are going to have a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. Oh, by the way, where was Hagar from? Oh, the first verse says she was an Egyptian. That verse right there should show you that, hey, Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Unless, now I, I have a PhD doctorate, I don't have an MD. But I think if there's an MD in the audience, you could probably confirm this. It's impossible for a man to father his mother. I think that's correct. And if that be the case, Ishmael couldn't father Hagar, an Egyptian. So Ishmael certainly didn't establish the Egyptian people. Look what it says over here. The Lord does meet with 
Jesus Christ I'm talking about in a pre-incarnate appearance does meet with Hagar. Look at verse 8. And he said unto Hagar, Sarah has maiden, whence camest thou? And he was asking what she was concerned about. And then he said unto her in verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. That, by the way, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And that you shall be, uh, be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thine affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. There's a character uh, analysis of what Ishmael is going to be like, a wild man raising his hand against every man, every man's hand against him. Uh, But indeed, he's going to father a nation. It didn't say nations, a nation. Look what it says here in verse 20 of chapter 17. Uh, The Lord Jesus again appears to Abraham. He's had this son, Ishmael, and here's what he tells him. Verse 20, and as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he begot, and I will make him a great nation, one nation. We'll continue this series next week with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Richard Schmidt with me on A Look at the Book, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Anyuts Kramer with Mission Network News. Ukraine expects prolonged attacks from Russia as payback for a deadly assault. At least 89 Russian soldiers died during a Ukrainian missile strike on New Year's Eve. Now, President Volodymyr Zelensky is telling his people, including the Transworld Radio Ukraine team, to hold on. Despite the upheaval, TWR Ukraine is reaching people for Christ. Ask God to keep blessing the team with creativity and stamina as they produce radio and social media programs. And traveling from village to village, Christian missionaries across Africa are sharing the love of Jesus with an essential tool, scripture booklets from World Missionary Press. The traveling missionaries are with the ministry partner of World Missionary Press. As they leave one village, the literature continues ministering the gospel. For just pennies a day, these scripture booklets are changing hearts and lives from Muslims in Nigeria to witch doctors in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, this is the portion of the program where we take 
a look at the book. This week, I have the special honor and privilege to have Dr. Richard Schmidt on the program with me to take a look at the book. Welcome to the program today, Dr. Schmidt. Well, thank you, and I'm looking forward to taking a quick look at the book here. Yes. So uh, let me bring this up because we are looking at 2023. We're kind of looking into, we understand what God's Word says, but these are just gut feelings that we have with our knowledge that we have, not only in God's Word, but as we watch the world media scene and events happening and unfolding, we have that biblical worldview. But I was watching a program this last week, 60 Minutes, and on that program, uh, there was a physicist that said that the population, we are overpopulating the world. That's the problem with where we are today. What would you say and how would you respond to him? Well, absolutely. We're looking at uh, 8 billion people that are now in the world, 350 million in America itself. I don't believe there's a population crisis. What there is, according to the globalist position, is a resource issue. Well, the Bible basically speaks to this. It tells us in Revelation 6, he says, when he opened the fourth seal, uh, the pale horse comes out, which basically is a symbolic look at multiple things, death, a fourth of the earth being killed with sword, hunger, and so forth. So what we're seeing from a, a globalist perspective is they want to wipe the world's population out. And when the first six seal judgments are unveiled at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, the death, the hunger, the violence, all of these things are going to be exponential. And I think a great deal of it is because people truly are going to be scared about this alleged massive population growth, and they're going to literally be fighting for their own lives. Now, I know last week we talked about we were going to focus on a global food crisis. We're also going to take a look at climate change. Do you think this leads to that? Well, absolutely. Again, what we're the big issue, one of the big issues in the world right now, two massive, huge issues, one of those being climate change. What we're seeing because of the alleged climate changes is different things that are taking place with uh, uh, multiple individuals across the world. The interesting thing is, and from a biblical perspective, uh, uh, Doc, uh, we, we both believe that there's going to be a climate change, but it's not going to significantly impact us during this current generation. Mm. And how do we know that? Well, uh, we do know that the, the globalists are concerned that if they get about a 1.5 degree centigrade advancement over where we are today, they basically are going to go into their own personal meltdowns. But quite frankly, it's not going to cause a meltdown or a significant climate change here on, our, on uh, our Earth. So this is an issue. The World Meteorological Organization is one of these other major world organizations that's really pushing along with the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, to keep everything uh, at what they believe is a 1.5 degrees Celsius raise. Well, I think it, what's really interesting for uh, us from a biblical perspective is there actually is going to be a significant climate change that is going to take place in the prophetic scriptures. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, it makes it very clear, and this is one of the last judgment that God's going to bring before he literally is going to come back at his second advent. Mm -hmm. Here's what it says. 
The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Hmm. The men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God. So right before Jesus Christ returns, literally he's going to crank up the heat extremely hot. The purpose is to get people's attention. What the Satan, of course, always says is counterfeit things that are taking place, which I believe is exactly what we're seeing now. We are not going to burn up. We have a minimum, according to prophecy, seven years of tribulation, 1,000 years in the millennial kingdom, which means there's no way that God's going to allow this earth to be burned up in less than uh, uh, the time that he's designated. So people can rest at ease. God's still on the throne. He's not stepping down. Yes. You know, and I always love that question when we do Q&A, and I'm sure you've had this before. When is the end of the world? Well, uh, the end of the world is at least 1,007 years from this moment. <laughs> so that's what we that's what we do know according to Bible prophecy. And, and that, of course, is should the rapture happen right now, it's at least 1,007 years away. And, and, of course, we don't know how long it's going to be after the rapture before the tribulation period begins. So everybody, like Dr. Richard Schmidt says, rest at ease. Well, I know that you have a new book out that's called It's on Globalism. Give us that information real quick. Well, globalism is a, a, the great world consumption, basically looking at the chaotic times that are existing currently that are setting the stage for the globalist movement, if you will, to come to fruition, which absolutely will happen according to Revelation 13, the entire chapter. So what I do is we go through Second Timothy, a couple of major chapters, Revelation 13, looking at how things right now are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled during the church age. Then we look at some of the major issues affecting the country and affecting the world right now, including things like climate change, including things like the massive uh, uh, movement among gender dysphoria and mm. cha sex changes and all these things which are huge. We look at the economics. We look at the issues regarding fuel and our economy. So all these things are in there, highly, highly documented, hundreds of footnotes with charts and graphs and all sorts of things to help people get educated, as we say, to understand what's coming as we approach the rapture of the church. Yes. We're going to put a link to his book on our website. Uh, go to our top 10 stories and you can take a look at that and order that book. It would help you in your study of Bible prophecy. Dr. Richard Schmidt, thank you so much for being with us today on a look at the book. Uh, you've brought some things to our, our, and you backed it up with scripture. So I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Take care. Folks, you know, after what Dr. Schmidt said, and as you know, you've listened to the program, you know that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. Well, Jimmy, so great to hear from you and Dr. Rich Schmidt. We appreciate his support of our ministry, and we appreciate him contributing to the program. We sure do. It's great. And Rick, really, after all that we've heard today, we can't help but say, let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.